if you've been through all of Scripture or you have ideas about God and you have nothing that makes you uncomfortable about it, that seems odd. Tonight's message is entitled, Endure. You might see that on the program if you grabbed one. And you might be wondering, what on earth does that have to do with what we're talking about tonight? Well, the reason I put that word up there is because in, the word endure is important, especially in a particular area where it shows up in Scripture. See, the things we endure are not things that we enjoy. They're not a lot of fun. Right? I have never once said in my life, and I doubt any of you have said, I really had to endure that bowl of ice cream. Because we don't endure things we enjoy. We endure things that are obnoxious. Like growing up as a 90s kid, I had to endure four Super Bowl losses in a row from the Buffalo Bills. That was awful. And then worse than that was not making the playoffs for a significant amount of time. And then you yearned for the glory days where you would just lose once at the end of the year. Endurance is a test of will. It's about making it through the things that are hard that we don't enjoy. Well, here's the truth about that. If we are, as the Bible describes us, beings who were born into a broken world, that our flesh is bent towards sin, even if our spirit is willing to serve God and we have repented and turned towards him, that our flesh is still bent towards the ways of the world and culture, which means that occasionally we're going to come across things in scripture that we have to endure because it's not fun and it's not easy. Unfortunately, it's my job to go through those time and time again. Tonight's one of those times, so <laughs> welcome. <laughs> Buckle up for a ride. Tonight we're going to endure. So I want to start by pointing out a few things that I think are important before we dig into Romans. Second Timothy. Now, the, the letters that Paul wrote to Timothy are instructive. They're about Paul instructing Timothy, who is really going to take on Paul's role as the new head of the church in the areas that Timothy has been put as an overseer. And Paul is warning Timothy about some of the things he's going to have to deal with as an overseer of a church, especially as the world decays. And 2 Timothy in particular is talking about the world decaying or the end. And so 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, says this in Paul's instruction to Timothy. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. So, good start. We're talking about the final judgment of God. So that should get your attention. Verse 2 says, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and 
teaching. And so Paul is telling Timothy, he's telling him to remember why he does what he does. Ultimately, there will be a final judgment that God brings, and the work of the church is to bring as many as you can into that final judgment to make it on Jesus' side. And so do all of the good work. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And what Paul tells Timothy is that especially in the last days, as we get closer and closer to the end, that people will no longer endure sound doctrine. They'll no longer endure the truth, but rather with itching ears, they're going to turn their ears and attention to those who will tell them what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. Because they've exchanged God as the moral authority for culture as the moral authority, and they try to add God and sprinkle him into the culture rather than letting God be the starting point. And he's telling them that's where things are going. But you, Timothy, the Apostle Paul is telling his mentee, don't you dare go off the wrong path. Make sure that you always teach sound doctrine. And how do you find it? Well, in the previous chapter, Paul told Timothy where to find it. He said in verses 14 through 17 of chapter 3, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known, what? The holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Why? Because verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God or God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so the authority to understand what God wants from us and how he has revealed himself is through the Holy Scriptures and through the word of God. And so that's what we dig into today to find out what God has for us. So Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. And if you're, if you're in your Bible, you might see a little heading that says, God's wrath on unrighteousness. So you can imagine how excited I am to talk about this. That is just, just a fun time. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So Paul starts off this section talking about how God's wrath is clear. It's been revealed against all ungodlessness and all unrighteousness, and God is clear and evident to the people. 
God has revealed himself through his creation. His invisible qualities are made visible by nature. And so that's where we start out with that video we watched earlier. It's, it's called the argument from design. When you look at the world around you, it's clear that there's a design. It's simplified in this way. No one looks at a watch and assumes it randomly put all of its pieces together. You assume there's a watchmaker because design shows you evidence of a designer. And it's not just things that we've discovered through modern science, like the force of gravity or the cosmological constant and things that have to be finely tuned for the universe to even sustain life. It goes further than that. And if you look into modern science even further, you find out things like the exact building block of life, the thing that makes life possible, the building block of intelligent life in particular, is DNA. It is information code that acts suspiciously like software code that we've created in our computers, only exponentially more sophisticated. And the only thing we've ever observed in the universe that starts information or creates information or builds off of information is intellect, is intelligent design. And so if the building blocks and the foundation pieces of life is information, we know that information only comes from intelligence. That's what we observe in the universe. And the scientific method where that thought came from, that hypothesis came from, is Charles Darwin. That's how he deduced things. What we can see in the nature that we observe around us is where we should assume our hypothesis from. If we have only ever observed information coming from intelligent sources, if life is found, the very building blocks of life is information, we should assume that life comes from an intelligent source or a design. But it's even simpler than that. If you walk outside, you will find beauty. You will find often in leaves symmetry and beauty and design. You will find, where does beauty even come from? Why do we even have that adjective? If it's all just random chaos, why is some of it pretty and some of it not? Beauty itself is evidence of design because design itself is to make things beautiful. And so as we are in this world, we have clear evidence of design, which points us to a designer. A God is out there. But let's back that up for a second. Let's just not even argue about the design, but time itself. Is there a God? Well, we know even now from modern science that there was a beginning to the universe. It started at some point. We know that through our mathematics and observance of the universe through telescopes. Because the universe is expanding, we can tell as we move back in time, it contracted to an individual point where at one point there was no nature. And if there is no nature, there is no natural law to create anything. So the beginning of the universe must have come from outside of nature or otherwise known as supernatural. Sounds like God. How do I know the universe is not infinite? How do I know it has a beginning? Time is a physical measurable property of the universe. But I don't even need science to point that out to you. I can just use logic. I can ask you a couple of questions and we'll get there. 
can you add to infinity? You can't. Infinity is a never-ending, forever-lasting loop. So if yesterday was part of an infinite past, how did we add today onto it? There must have been a beginning. There must have been, logically, a beginning. And if there's a beginning, and there's a beginning to nature, and natural law can't exist until nature begins, so there must have been something outside of nature, otherwise known as supernatural, to get it all started with. God is evident in the world. His invisible qualities are visible through his creation, so that none of us are without excuse. Paul picks up verse 21. Because although they know God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So Paul is giving us insight into what leads man down its destructive path. When you lose sight of the authoritative created creator, if he is the creator, if he stands outside of the universe, outside of the world that we understand, if he is supernatural, he's the author of this universe. He's the moral authority. He is the answer. But if you lose sight of that and your worldview shifts and you get concerned with culture and you try to add God into it, then you're trying to fit God into a box he can't possibly fit into. If he's outside of the universe, he's bigger than it, and he can't fit inside your box. But this is a shift in worldview. What Paul is talking about and explaining reminds us of Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 2. See, Eve in the garden, when the serpent deceived her, lost sight of God as the authority. And it led to sinful ideas and worldview. See, when she forgot that God was the one who designed her and had the authority to tell her what she could and could not do with the fruit, and she started being deceived by the serpent, by the world, she still saw God, but she tried to fit God into that new view of her world. And now God had become the one who deceived her. This fruit is good to eat, she thought. And she ate it. See, when your starting point is not God as the creator and moral authority of the universe, you start with culture. And you attempt to put God into it and try to fit him into culture. We fit into his universe and plan, not the other way around. So how do you view God? Is God something you've added to your life and tried to fit into your life? Or have you tried to fit yourself into his plan and his universe because he is the author and creator of life?
We have to have the right view, or we can confuse what God has said, because we no longer see him as the authority. We just try to fit some of his ideas that we like into the culture that we like and create a new idea, and that doesn't work. See, Proverbs 1.7 states this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the fear of the Lord is recognizing the creator and the authority of God as the creator, as the moral authority of the universe, and understanding that we fit into his creation and we come under his authority rather than try to tell him what he's supposed to do. As if the creation can point back to the creator and tell him what he got wrong. That is kind of a silly view and heavily arrogant. In verse 26, we get now what happens when this shift in worldview takes place. So this happens at the individual level and the national level. And so what we've seen right now in Paul's letters, when he's talking about going off and becoming more wicked or more unrighteous, is that little shift in worldview from God as the authority to just adding God to the culture around me. And this is the results. This is what happens after. So picking up in verse 26, it says, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. So at some point, when the authority of God is continually resisted, part of his judgment is not just to destroy. We like to think of that sometimes as we read some of the Old Testament stories, that God just destroys. But honestly, part of his judgment is actually to just let you do what you're going to do. If you continue to reject his authority, he just gives you over to your passions, to your flesh and lets you deal with the consequences of your actions. And unfortunately, it can lead to a desolate place. And if it doesn't get you in this life, it will on that day of judgment, is what Paul is telling us. He says, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. He gave them up to their own desires, to their flesh. It said, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of the error which was due. And now i got to be honest with you, that couple of verses isn't a lot of fun for me in the culture that I live in to speak out and say and talk about. But I'm not saying it. Scripture is. And if Scripture is as described, God breathed, and God is the creator and the moral authority of the universe, then I must come under his authority, not try to fit him into what I would like the moral rules to be. And we have to endure sound doctrine. Endurance means dealing with stuff that we might not actually like. That stuff hits me the wrong way when I read it. My flesh doesn't like that because I don't want to be controversial. I don't want to create arguments and conflicts. I don't like that, but it's not my job to tell God what I would like. It's my job to fit under his authority. And if he says something is sinful, he's the author of what is sinful. I must listen to him. And so what he says is when men and women leave the natural for what is not, 
for relations with each other, well, that's sinful. Now, notice it doesn't say temptation. It doesn't say attraction. The temptation is not the sin. The act is. It also doesn't say that I should condemn or hate someone because they commit sin. It's just simply telling me that when God hands people over to their passions, they indulge in them. And this in particular is an act of sin. doesn't mean I should hate them or condemn them. But it also doesn't mean I should change what the truth is to satisfy someone's desires. Verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, Inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. You hear that, students? Don't be disobedient to your parents. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. That last line is important. You see, what it says here is that all of this list of sin and wickedness, those things are deserving of death because, as Paul will tell us later, the wages of sin, what you earn from sin, is death. However, what he's really condemning here is not only the sinful action that you've committed in the past, but also approving and rallying it on, right? encouraging and approving of that practice. Because what we'll also find out as we go through the book of Romans is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There isn't a single one of us that can point the finger at someone else and say, I'm better off than you, because I'm not. If I stood, any one of us stands before the throne of God to be judged, none of us will be successful in making it, because none of us have not sinned. And the wages of sin is death. That's what we all get and deserve. But thankfully, there is a death that has already happened on the cross. That death can be a substitute payment for your sin. Your sin deserves death. That's the payment that you've earned. But Christ's death can substitute your payment to give you eternal life. That's the gospel. And so while this is certainly not fun to talk about, the wrath of God is real. The wrath of God causes death and judgment, and God does judge at the end. That is all true. And what he has listed is sinful. You can't deny it. It's what the scripture says, and scripture is God breathed, and he is the mortal authority. I don't want to fit God into my box. I want to come under the authority of God. It's all true. But the important part is that we're all in the same boat. There isn't one of us who hasn't sinned. The good news is that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners because he loved us. 
And that can be a substitution for the death we deserve so that we can receive eternal life. Pretty amazing stuff. But it also means that we can't twist or pervert what God has stated. We can't worship a God that fits into our picture of what we want him to be. We have to worship God as he has presented himself. He has revealed himself through the scripture, through the word of God. They're God-breathed. It's who he is. He's the author of what is good and right and wrong. He knows. So are we worshiping the Jesus that is really testified about in the scriptures? Or are we inventing our own version of Jesus to worship? Because that was also warned about by Paul. Remember when he said, you create images for yourself like a man or like a reptile. He's talking about the pagan cultures around them that instead of worshiping the obvious creator of the universe, they have started to worship creation and they made little statues out of wood or stone that looked like animals or creation that existed and they worshiped those things instead of the obvious creator. They worshiped the creation. So what you don't want to do is worship your own creation. You don't want to worship a Jesus that you invented or a God that you've invented. You want to worship the God who has revealed himself clearly through his word and made sure to have the Holy Spirit tell Paul that all scripture is God-breathed. And also to warn us that as we get closer and closer to the end, that people would be looking to not listen to it. That people would be looking to turn their itching ears away from the truth, because the truth means you have to endure some things that you might not like, because it makes you controversial. But instead, keep sound doctrine and endure the stuff that might be difficult to deal with, because that endurance leads to eternal life. Rather than having a comfy temporary life and eternal suffering, you can have a little temporary discomfort and eternal grace and peace, life, because of the substitution of the death on the cross. So today's message is endure. So what I would say to you is, if you've been through all of Scripture or you have ideas about God and you have nothing that makes you uncomfortable about it, that seems odd because we are sinful creatures and our flesh pushes towards the world and the culture. We want to not be controversial beings. We want to fit in. We don't want to stand out. That's who we are in our human nature. So if nothing you believe about God makes you even a tiny bit uncomfortable, you may want to study a little bit because there are things in here that will make you uncomfortable and they should make you uncomfortable because like Paul says, our flesh is at war with our spirit. The spirit is willing. My flesh is weak. So endure the tough things and deal with the true Jesus because only God as the ultimate authority and the Jesus that is revealed in the scriptures is the one that can save you, not one of our own invention. So endure the tough stuff because that means your death is substituted for on the cross and that gives you opportunity for eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, thank you 
I'm so thankful for it, the Holy Spirit and how you've worked through the apostles in the first century and through all of the biblical characters and those writers of your word. God, thank you for using them to reveal yourself to us and to protect this word throughout history so that we can know you. God, I ask that we're not afraid to know you, but that we are understanding that sometimes that means we're going to have to endure things that don't make us comfortable. But that's good because it means we know where our flesh is warring against our spirit. God, help us to follow you and to see you as the, as the authority, as the creator God of all. And help us to submit to that authority and love you, the you that's revealed, that you revealed yourself in scripture to us so that we can receive that substitutionary atonement on the cross and get eternal life and have a real relationship with you. We love you, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.